And so at this moment, we must decide what kind of nation are we going to be? Are we going to be a nation that accepts political violence as a norm? Are we going to be a nation where we allow partisan election officials to overturn the legally expressed will of the people? Are we going to be a nation that lives not by the light of the truth, but in the shadow of lies? We cannot allow ourselves to be that kind of nation. The way forward is to recognize the truth and to live by it. A year ago today, I was in Atlanta covering the Georgia Senate runoff, feeling proud of myself as I wrapped up coverage of what I thought was the biggest story of the moment, definitely the day. Then I turned on the TV and watched in horror as a pro-Trump mob of people scaled the walls of the Capitol or tore through the front door, dead set on overturning the election. It was both surreal and deeply personal at the same time. I thought of my wife at home alone, not far from the violence I was seeing on TV. I thought of my colleagues, who I knew would be sprinting into the madness. I covered the White House for The Post, and this wasn't something I ever thought I would see. That day changed our democracy. It changed where the lines are. And I find myself wondering a year later, will those lines hold or keep fraying? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Cleve Woodson. It's Thursday, January 6th. Today marks one year since the insurrection, and I've been mulling the state of our democracy. Is January 6th going to go down as a bad day in our nation's history? Or is it a prelude of the elections to come? Are the scars of January 6th healing, or is this still an open wound? My colleagues and I talk about this stuff all the time, and I wanted to give you guys a sense of what those conversations are like with people who cover these things day in and day out. So I sat down with a few of the smart people I work with here at The Post. Here's that conversation. Um, The first question is always the easiest ones. Tell us who you are and what you do for The Post. Let's, Let's try alphabetical order by first name. How about Amy, you wanna start? Sure thing. I'm Amy Gardner, and I'm a national political reporter at The Post, and I focus on voting issues. Dan, I think you're up. I'm Dan Baltz. I'm a political reporter at The Washington Post covering campaigns and other related issues. And I'm Roz Helderman. I'm an investigative reporter on the political staff. The biggest question and the first question is, could you each give us a sense of where we are as a country, one year out from January 6th. Dan, I'd like to start with you because your office is closest to my desk uh, (laughs) for no other arbitrary reason. But where do you think we are when it comes to, say, partisan politics as a result of January 6th? Cleve, I think we're in a somewhat perilous place. We know we're a divided country. We have been for a long time. I think what we're now worried about is the degree to which those divisions, and particularly what's happened to the Republican Party, have put sort of the institutions of democracy at risk. You know, a year ago, 
ahead of January 6th, we might have thought that we were moving toward you know, calmer times with a new president and vaccines available to deal with COVID and, and a kind of a general desire to lower temperatures. And I think if we look back after the last year, we would say that was a complete misunderstanding of what was about to happen. And we've seen so many things this year that have given rise to concerns about the future of our elections and election integrity and the counting of elections, that I think that there are people now talking about the state of democracy in a way they they probably never would have thought about uh, a few years ago. I had a conversation recently with a political scientist who said, you know, political scientists are trained to be, in a sense, nonpartisan, as are journalists, but they are also trained to be pro-democracy. And she said, when you have to make a choice between being nonpartisan and pro-democracy, you have to be pro-democracy. And that's the situation we're in now. You read stories by people who are by far not alarmist by any means, talking about the dangers that could exist in the future. And I think that's the, the real difference between today and, let's say, January 5th, 2021. Amy, I, I wonder if you can talk about voting and where voting stands a year out from January 6th. How have the laws changed over the last year? Um, what do things look like in some of the swing states that we were watching most closely after the election? Sure. I actually think it's still an unknown how the laws that were passed in 2021 in the aftermath of the presidential election last year, what effect they will actually have. In fact, that's one of the great tests that 2022 midterm elections and the 2024 presidential election will provide for us to see, you know, there were some pretty expansive new laws passed in really critical swing states, as you said, Georgia, Iowa, Florida, Arizona, and Wisconsin. And we we don't know exactly how they will affect access to the vote. We know that they were passed in the name of making elections more secure, even though there was no evidence presented that widespread fraud tainted the 2020 election. So by some measures, these laws were solutions in search of a problem. But by the same token, some of the provisions like eliminating drop boxes for absentee ballots or making signature requirements on mail ballots more strict, we don't know yet if those will actually make it harder for people to vote. And we certainly don't know if we're going to be able to measure that because it's very difficult to measure what specific cause prevents someone from voting or allows them, enables them to. There's a lot of rhetoric on both sides of the partisan divide on this topic. And so unfortunately, the the long answer, but the, you know, kind of nonpartisan answer is that we really don't know. Is is there a state that you're watching closer than others? I know that you and I both spent a lot of time in Georgia, for example, and there's a gubernatorial race that's going on there. There's a, a Senate race that's going to be going on there. Some of the earliest voting laws changes were put in place there. I'm not trying to lead you to a particular state, but I wonder <laughs> if if you're looking at any state in particular or any state closer than the others. I'm looking at several states and I am looking at Georgia. Georgia's fascinating. And there's another race that's really important in Georgia that you didn't mention that I will, which is the Secretary of State's race. So the incumbent is a Republican named Brad Raffensperger, who is in 
former President Trump's mind, public enemy number one for certifying the result in Georgia last year. And he's being challenged by a Republican member of Congress named Jody Heiss, who is all in on Trump's false claims about the election. Uh, Representative Heiss voted not to accept the electoral college count on January 6th. He voted against commending the Capitol Police who fought against the uh, rioters that day. He has been campaigning almost exclusively on a platform accusing Raffensperger of dividing the party and failing to make the election secure. And most Republicans in Georgia believe it will be very, very difficult for Raffensperger to win. The Republican electorate in Georgia is very conservative, is very fond of President Trump. Trump has endorsed Mr. Heiss. So it's a case study in the former president's hold on the Republican Party. And it will also be a case study on what it will mean to have someone who embraces the false claims of election fraud in a position of authority over the administration of elections as we head into the 2024 presidential race. See, there's so much Waffle House in your future. Um, <laughs> Roz, I wonder if you can talk about the spread of disinformation, particularly in our democracy more broadly. Like, do, this is, you get only the easy questions. Like, do people still have faith in our democracy? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the critical question for the future of our democracy, right? I mean, I think we started this conversation with Dan talking about sort of what has changed in the last year um, in the area where I do a lot of reporting. The answer is sort of nothing. It's people who are still obsessed more than a year later with the 2020 election. And there is a, a reason for that, which is that there is a very active day in, day out, 24-7 disinformation campaign that is taking place on behalf of people who, um, some of whom passionately believe this, some of whom are making money from these claims, but uh, some of whom find it to be to their partisan advantage to be advancing these claims. But it's a sort of unending industry of disinformation to convince people that they should not believe the results of what was, in fact, a safe and free and secure election. And the more people buy into that disinformation and the more people believe those voices, the harder it's going to be to ever have an uncontested election again. And if you think about it, democracy works because people believe in it. It works because people go in and make an agreement with each other uh, that they will recognize the results of a democratic election, even if their side does not win. And so the fewer people believe that cycle in and cycle out, the more afraid democracy becomes. So, guys, one of the first things I wanted to talk about was the results of a poll that the Post conducted a short time ago and that, that Dan, that you wrote the story about last week. And the poll asked whether violence against the government can at times be justified. And one out of every three Americans said, yes, it can, which is the largest share of Americans who've held that view since the question was first asked more than 20 years ago. What do you what do you make of that? Yeah, it's a very striking finding, Cleve. Um, I, I don't know what expectations I or any of us had when we added that question to the poll, but I think we were all surprised that 34% of Americans said that, you know, violence is justified at times against the government. And if you break that 
down along party lines. It's 40 percent of Republicans. Interestingly, 41 percent of independents and 23 percent of Democrats. So the remarkable thing is when we looked back at other polls, either that we have done or that other news organizations have done dating back a couple of decades, there was nothing comparable. This was at least 10 or 11 points higher than any previous poll. And I think, you know, considerably higher uh, than most of the other polls. So something has happened. And, you know, I think we're, we're in this moment in which extremism can breed extremism and people who otherwise would not necessarily take a position like that, believe that those on the other side would or already have done that sort of thing. And it increases the danger. I think that this question about what happens in future elections is not simply will there be contested elections, but if there are contested elections, to what extent will that breed you know, massive protests in the streets beyond anything we've seen in recent years, including after George Floyd, and how, you know, what is the propensity for violence coming out of that? Again, I don't want to be alarmist about this, and I'm trying not to be, but this is something that people are thinking about and talking about and worrying about. We we had an op-ed recently by three retired generals who said the military needs to be preparing for a possible civil war in this country. Now, this is not the kind of civil war that we fought back in the, you know, in 1861, which was North versus South. This is a different kind of division within the country. But the fact that, that people are talking about that gives you some idea of what that poll finding suggests. I, I wonder how many journalists or thought leaders have said over the last year, like, I don't want to be alarmist, but um, Roz, let me let me sort of pivot to you, because I I think we think uh, when we think about elections, when we think about movements, we think about them more or less intensifying as elections near, particularly presidential elections and then sort of dying away or or losing steam, losing oxygen. And I and I wondered to, you know, based on the stuff that you've reported over the last year, the things that you've seen, can you give us a sense of how much of this is permanent? How, you know, how much of this is like seeped into our bloodstream and become sort of a permanent part of who we are as a nation? I told you I would only give you the easy questions. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that uh, political scientists and others have talked for a long time about the sort of perpetual political campaign that our system has sort of moved in that direction, such that so much of politics is geared always towards the next campaign. And I think one danger we face is that we might be entering a moment where we're in the perpetual election, right? No election ever actually ends. And you know, to Dan's point, the ultimate fear is that a contested election that has no ability to have a peaceful end eventually emerges into violence. But even before you get to that alarming final state, one of the things you see happening in a number of states is uh, state legislatures have been considering not just uh, laws governing how people vote, but a lot more thought is now being uh, paid to how the outcome of an election is actually determined. Who is the one who actually goes in and declares that a vote was valid and that votes can be certified? How does that process happen? I, I recently did a story on developments that have been going on in Wisconsin, which is a place where there's a lot of thought being given right now by Republicans in that state to changing 
who gets to decide who won the election and potentially giving that power to the legislature, making that a more partisan process, which would give partisan figures the ability to draw out, contest, potentially overturn what the election professionals say were the actual results of an election. So this notion that we are entering a state where you cannot find an agreed upon answer to conclude an election is is quite distressing. I'll direct this to to Amy and, and to Roz because of that project that we all worked on. Um, but I find myself thinking a lot about January 7th. You know, the Capitol was stormed. Folks have gotten to their cars or, or taken planes home and they're just basically walking amongst us. And I wonder where those folks are now. Like, do they, not not just in a physical location, but do they have the same beliefs? Are they more understated about those very, very strong beliefs because they've seen how popular opinion has turned against them? Like in, in, in what space, whether it be physical or on the internet, do they exist? What What have you guys found? I think that there are small examples that we have tracked of January 6th defendants uh, specifically expressing remorse and sort of repudiating their earlier statements or actions as they related to whether they believed the election was stolen, although whether they were, you know, saying what they believed they needed to say in order to be, you know, granted some mercy in a courtroom is is an open question because I think what we also see is that these sentiments are not going away. The online social media apps are still, you know, lit up with conspiracy theories. Those conspiracy theories have not gone away. And the rhetoric has also not gone away. Uh, I believe there was a recent report of a of a gentleman saying in a public event with Ali Alexander, one of the organizers of January 6th, when do we get to use our weapons or something like that? And that kind of rhetoric is is ongoing. And so to your point about January 7th, it has not generally abated at all, even if there are examples of people sort of repudiating what they did then. One really striking example of what I'm talking about is how many candidates are running for office embracing the false claims about the election and also embracing a revisionist version of what happened on January 6th itself. So it's like a double uh, whammy of false you know, information. I just recently updated a survey that I started in the fall about how many candidates are running based on Trump's false statements. And right now, there are at least 164 candidates running for statewide positions that would give them authority over administration of elections. That's including 69 candidates for governor in 30 states, 55 candidates for the U.S. Senate, 13 candidates for state attorney general, 19 candidates for secretary of state in states where that job is responsible for election administration. I mean, and there are more ways to look at that data that are also alarming. At least five candidates for the House of Representatives were at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump last January for inciting an insurrection, all of them are facing a challenger if they're running. So, I mean, it's not going away is the upshot of all of that. 
I, I, I want to dive more into those politicians, but I, I, one question based off of what you said, like, what does that alternative reality, like, what does the January 6th multiverse look like? You know, we know what we saw on TV. We know some of us who were there. We know what we saw. Um, what are those folks who are embracing a revisionist history saying, saying actually happened? It depends, but some folks are talking about their own experience, claiming that they didn't see any violence, that they waltzed through the hallways of the Capitol and that Capitol police officers were friendly and waved them through and then they left when they got bored. There are different iterations of of those kinds of statements, which are obviously patently untrue given what we saw on the steps of the West side of the building where the worst violence occurred. There's a, you know, a claim that they're being treated unjustly by the judicial system. They are political prisoners, those who are in incarcerated currently. So those are some of the some of the statements that you hear that don't mesh with the record. And if I could jump in and add, I mean, you know, one of the things we've seen with January 6th is it follows sort of the pattern of other complicated disinformation where over time the theories become more and more complicated and elaborate. There is a a theory that has gained traction in some portions of uh, this world that grows more complicated uh, by the day that says that the FBI actually engineered January 6th. They've identified people by name who they claim were actually FBI informants and rallied others and were the ones who truly caused uh, violence, all of which there is no actual evidence or proof. In fact, all the evidence goes in the opposite direction that any of that is true. But it feels to me like the some portions of the Republican Party have undergone sort of a turning over the course of the year. For a brief moment, uh, there was real shock and horror, uh, which you could hear even in the words of Kevin McCarthy that night. Then there was sort of silence and a condemnation of the violence itself, but an insistence that it didn't actually reflect on Trump or the party. There was also the false claim that it was actually Antifa and not Trump supporters. Over time, that has sort of morphed into more of a way of sort of turning it around on the left and saying that Democrats are obsessed with this. It might have been bad, but they're spending too much time talking about it and they're persecuting and unfairly treating these people. Um, the last stage of this, which I do think we are seeing in some corners of uh, the Republican Party, is an actual embrace that what the rioters did that day was good, that it was good and worthy and noble. And that's the most frightening stage of all because it allows for an acceptance of violence as a political tool, as a worthy political tool. And that's especially distressing for the future. Hmm. Cleve, can I add, can I add uh, one other piece to this? Of course, of course. Um, and, and that is the role of Donald Trump. You know, we, we're talking about the people who committed the acts of violence in the in the Capitol and, and what's going on, in a sense, in, in the grassroots of the Trump party. But the fact that the former president has not backed away an inch from all of the false claims that he has been spewing for more than a year now is part of what feeds this. It's what fans this fire that, you know, that is out there. And I think that there's no evidence that there's going to be any diminution in that on his part. 
And one of the things, you know, I think what Roz said is is very important because one of the things that we're seeing in the Republican Party is that this this shift away from the shock and, and even condemnation of what happened on January 6th and particularly Trump's responsibility, uh, in part at least, for what happened is because they're looking at a midterm election in which they're poised to take power in the House and maybe the Senate. They need the Trump base in order to do that. They need Trump to be an attribute and not a liability. And so this has now all become an issue of how do we regain power? Um, But in regaining power, that plants even more seeds for the potential for future elections to be contested in a way that 2020 ultimately failed to be contested. For those folks who stood by Trump, the politicians who stood by Trump and and the Capitol insurrectionists, you know, what's what's happened to them? In, in that constellation, is is there someone who's emerged, for example, as the the face of of this group or this movement? You know, is it is it still Trump or is it somebody like, you know, the recently deplatformed Marjorie Taylor Greene? You know, it, it's sort of like the, you know, who's won and who's lost in this? Actually, Dan, let me let me point that question at you. I think we've talked about this before. Yeah, I, I Cleve, I still think it's Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is is so much bigger and more important to all of this than any of the individuals who are, you know, more outrageous than he is. I mean, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, for example, you know, she gets outsized attention because she she is so outrageous in the way she has responded to all of this. And she's flagrant about it. Trump is relentless about it. And Trump has a hold on the party, unlike any past president that we can remember. Ronald Reagan was an icon for for decades as the former president of the Republican Party, but he did not exercise uh, that in any particular way. Trump exercises his authority, his power, uh, his reach every day in endorsing and in, in attacking and, in, you know, in spewing falsehoods. So others who are, you know, in a sense, minor characters become larger because they they help to you know, magnify that or or send it out in addition to what Trump is. But they're following Trump's lead. I see. Roz, is, is there is there a political benefit to amplifying this? Or is it that you you reap some benefit, but you're also sort of uh, demonized by another group of people? I mean, what we've seen so far uh, is within the Republican Party, there's not just political benefit, there's political necessity. It has grown increasingly impossible as a Republican to stand in the way of these false claims and to stand in the way of the allegations that uh, Donald Trump is making about the elections and to still retain support within the Republican Party. Now, you know, we're, we're between election cycles and, you know, we're going to have a set of primaries and then we will eventually have general elections and maybe the voters will ultimately tell us something different that particularly at a statewide level that they will hold some accountability uh, for these views in closely or or swing states. Um, But at present, what you have seen is any Republican who does not get on board with this 
faces uh, challengers, faces enormous uh, fundraising struggles. And, you know, we've seen a number of such people actually choose to retire and resign from office. Um, There's also the fact that uh, Amy and I uh, focus a lot in the um, third chapter of the project uh, the Washington Post published about January 6th, covering the period after January 6th, on the enormous, enormous rise in menacing threats to public officials and also elected officials um, that continues and has in some ways grown since January 6th. And so for Republicans who um, won't embrace the false claims about the election, they face very real and persistent threats of violence against them and their families, um, which many have found disconcerting and have said have actually driven them from office. After the break, we take you to the other side of the political aisle. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. I wonder if we can hop across the political aisle and look at the Democrats. Um, do they continue to run on Trump and hold him up as a, a boogeyman? Or do they pivot to what matters today and kitchen table issues? And can you can you do that if if this insurrection is kind of seeped into the national bloodstream? I think, Amy, you might be anybody can hop in, but Amy, you might be best positioned to answer that. I can certainly talk about some of the Democrats who I have been speaking with who tend to be uh, state level in positions of over election administration, whether they're governors or attorneys general or secretaries of state. And in those positions, I believe there is a strong consensus that democracy is on the ballot. Maybe not Trump, because history has shown us that when he's not on the ballot, it's not as galvanizing for Democrats, like what we saw in the Virginia governor's race this past fall. But Dana Nessel, the attorney general of Michigan, uh, is being challenged by a gentleman named Matthew DiPerno, who is one of the leading lawyers who sued over the Michigan election results last year, or two years ago now, 2020, and who spread utterly false, even fabulous theories about the Dominion voting systems machines switching votes via, you know, Germany and Venezuela and all kinds of stuff. And she told me in an interview a couple of weeks ago that if DiPerno is the next attorney general, democracy will be deeply, grievously injured in Michigan. And that's what she's going to be campaigning on. It's different, you know, the federal elections, the the House and the Senate, we've seen some reluctance on the part of national Democrats to run against Trump and and, and an attempt to try to uh, bring it to, as you put it, kitchen table issues. 
I don't know how they're going to thread that needle because the state office holders or those who are seeking those offices are, I've heard them talk about how it's democracy that's on the ballot first and foremost this year. Dan Roz, I know that we've we've talked about that a little bit too. I wonder if you have thoughts on on what, if anything, Democrats can do in addition to what Amy said. Well, I I think we have two real time examples over the last year uh, on this. One was the California recall election when Gavin Newsom was challenged, and Newsom very much made this a, a campaign against Donald Trump. He, he turned the principal Republican opponent into a Trump mini-me. Uh, he, he talked about the dangers of the kinds of things Trump is doing coming to California. He used the examples of, of the governors of Texas and Florida who have, you know, have followed the anti-COVID vaccine, anti-mask approach, and basically tried to turn this into a national referendum on kind of Trump Trumpism and, and what the Republican Party that runs with Trump looks like. He was enormously successful, but that is a deeply blue state. Then we saw in Virginia, obviously a state trending blue, but it's much more of a swing state than, than California. And Terry McAuliffe tried to do much the same thing in the, in the race against Governor-elect Youngkin and failed, um, that that strategy did not work. Youngkin was was shrewd enough to uh, embrace enough of Trump and Trumpism to, to keep the Trump loyalists active and energized, but was able to talk about other things that appealed to more the, you know, in a sense, the, the more traditional non-Trump Republican voters. So out of those two, we don't have a definitive answer to the question. Uh, I, I think the issue of democracy being on the ballot is something that that Democrats will want to talk about. But as a voting issue at this point, I'm not sure that it's that significant compared to other issues, which is certainly going to be, you know, President Biden's handling of COVID and President Biden's legislative proposals and President Biden's domestic strategy generally. Those tend to be the issues that in a midterm election, particularly the first one of a new presidency, uh, tend to dominate. You know, I'd like to point out that we've been talking for a good bit here, and this is the first time the words President Biden have, has come out of anybody's mouth. Um, and I and I wonder if we can pivot to him just a, a little bit, because one of the things that Joe Biden ran on, if you, if you go back to forever ago, was hate. You know, I'm going to unite the country. Um, all the stuff that we saw in Charlottesville, he, he said, is what motivated him to run. Um, and he ran as somebody that's going to not just unite the country, but also be a valiant, you know, voice against, you know, all of this stuff, right? All of all of this 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 hatred and this this division and all of this stuff. And I and I wonder if you know the the Democrats that you've spoken to, the Republicans you've spoken to, the average people that you've spoken to, feel like he's made good on that promise. You know, the objective evidence is that the the country at this point does not think he's done that. I mean, his approval ratings are not strong at all. They're much weaker than they were at the beginning of his presidency. He's obviously run into lots of problems. I, I will say he's given some of his most passionate speeches about the state of democracy and the importance for passing some kind of voting law, but he's he's mostly powerless to get that done, absent the full support of every Democratic senator, because there's no Republican at this point who's prepared to vote for the the Democratic bill, and and we could you know we can discuss 
the merits and 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 lack of merits of elements of the Democrats' bill. But nonetheless, in a 50-50 Senate, you need everybody or, or and you've got to somehow do something about the filibuster. That's not on the table at this point. And so the president has the only thing that a president has in the end, which is the bully pulpit, but that's not enough to change it. And so he can he can continue to speak and push and advocate. But at this point, the Democrats don't have the political muscle to do that. And his agenda in, in a purely ideological sense is anathema to many Republicans. And so um, he's in a very tough spot as he tries to, to, to make this advocacy. I wonder if January 6th has changed in any way the way that you guys do your jobs and the way that you approach it. Isn't disinformation in the title of your job? Um, you know, how does that, do, do you look at it differently? Or do you see that you've always been trying to fight the good fight and, and tell the truth? And, and this is just a continuation of that. Anything different? For me, myself, I don't believe I had fully allowed myself to contemplate the possibility of the kind of violence that we saw on January 6th and how that could interact with the political system. And once you see it, it's hard to unsee it It's and it's hard to not fear uh, it for the future. It's hard not to uh, think in the future about what that day is going to look like in future election cycles, what similar um, moments of democratic transition that have always before been routine, how they could be interrupted or disrupted through the use of force and violence. And so um, it sounds a little cliche to say that it's been eye-opening, but I think that's a, that's a, a fair conclusion. It's been eye-opening. Mm. Amy, Dan, no pressure. It's a good answer, Roz. Well, you know, one thing that occurred to me as Roz was talking was something that she said at the beginning, which is just the way that we characterize what happened in the 2020 election and on January 6th in some circles makes us partisans. And that's really hard because we hate being viewed as partisans. It's completely anathema to how we see ourselves. And it's not what we aspire to to do or be as journalists. And while maybe there's no such thing as objectivity, there is fairness and there is accuracy and there are facts. And in reporting, it's become very challenging to report facts with evidence and to be viewed as an enemy or a partisan or a member of the, you know, fake news. And, and, that that weighs on all of us, I think, as we endeavor to produce journalism that reaches the widest possible audience it can reach. You know, if we, again, what we were talking about at the beginning, how divided the country is, how do we reach the half of the country that doesn't believe what we write? And And figuring that out is just so, so challenging. I haven't figured it out. Yeah, it doesn't believe what we write before we even write it. Uh, <laughs> You know, the moment, you know, before it's even there. Uh, Dan, any thoughts to close us out on, you know, same old, same old for you? Or do you do you look at your job differently in any way? But yes, I think it's impossible not to look at what we do differently as a result of January 6th and, and everything that happened after January 6th over the course of the of the last year. You know, all through the Trump presidency, we recognized that we were in a unique period. 
uh, and that that he was putting down challenges to the institutions of democracy, unlike any president we had seen. And yet, I think that the the expectation was that the 2020 election, as close as it was in many ways, began to answer some of those questions and that, that there had been a rejection of Trump and to some extent Trumpism. Um, and I think what we've what we've recognized over the last year is that's not the case. And for the first time, I think, you know, for somebody who, you know, who covers politics, as I have tried to do it over the years, the lens has, has had to be widened. And we're not just covering battles between Republicans and Democrats and who wins and who loses. We're looking at the fundamentals of democracy. And I think that that is uh, something that we had either taken for granted and therefore didn't pay much attention to or, or simply were negligent in being as vigilant as it appears we may have to be. And I think that that has certainly, I think about what I do differently today than I did a year ago and certainly five years ago before Trump came on the scene. That's it for Post Reports on this historic and somber day. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced and mixed by Renny Svernovsky and edited by Maggie Penman. Tomorrow on the show, we hear from Congressman Jamie Raskin, who dealt with a searing family tragedy days before the January 6th attack. In a cosmic sense, they were logically independent of each other. But in my life, they are inextricably bound. I'm Cleve Woodson. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.